Friday was Valentine's Day, the day societal expectations fairly dictate that couples express their romantic feelings for one another. If there is a romantic interest in your life, it is de facto law that you express those feelings on that day, the 14th of February. No questions asked, no excuses accepted. Not only are we expected to express our romantic feelings on that day, we are instructed how to express them on that day. You have to express your love in print. I'm figuring this out as I watch our world. It's got to be in print, but the paper has to be folded. Don't give a piece of paper that's not folded, and it has to be in an envelope. At least that's good if it's in an envelope. But don't think about writing your thoughts down without folding the paper. And if you can put it in an envelope, that's great. And then you must express your love with flowers, chocolate, a stuffed animal, dinner at a romantic restaurant, an evening on the town, a night in a hotel, or some respectable combination of those. That's absolutely essential. And what really boggles my mind is that we do it. We dutifully obey these societal expectations on cue, December 14th. Bear with me a little bit here, but I personally think that we should rise up and protest and tell the cultural engineers, I will be romantic when I choose to be romantic and how I choose to be romantic. I can handle it all by myself, so just leave me alone. It's so contrived, it's so predictable, it's so scripted. In one sense, it's probably good for us to realize it's kind of silly and maybe a little embarrassing and laugh at ourselves. And so if you, you'll know now to pray for my poor wife. I'm a hopeless cynic, <laughs> these things. But uh, Valentine's Day romantic, I'll have to admit I'm not. But seriously speaking... I think some of my problem is that I know that our society has no clue what romance really is because it has never tasted the love of God. It knows nothing of genuine love, and so eros without agape proves empty and sometimes just very silly. So when my culture, my culture, this culture, calls me to express romantic feelings for my wife, I guess I bristle a bit. Because the command rings so hollow in this culture and world. But when my God calls me to live a life of love, I know in my heart that this call is my life. When God calls me to love Him with all my heart, when God calls me to love my neighbor as myself, when God calls me to love my enemies, I know in my regenerate spirit that this call to this kind of love is a call to liberty and it's a call to freedom. So hang Valentine's Day, if you will, but give me this divine love that enlivens, that transforms and enriches all other kinds of loves. This love that is nothing less than participation in the divine nature itself. It is this love that we absolutely must have. And I'd like to drive that home to us today. We have to have this kind of love. In 1 Corinthians 13, we find the greatest poem ever composed on the topic of agape love, of God's love. And so this chapter is a necessary stop, I think, on our journey through the biblical teaching concerning this great theme of love. And I'd like us to take a careful pass through this instruction here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This is a chapter that is so rich, it is so filled with application, 
ideas. It is also filled with some tremendous theological challenges. It's a, it is a tremendous passage. But I would like today to take some time to carefully trace the context so that we can move into 1 Corinthians 13 armed with this knowledge of what Paul is saying here in this book. First of all, let me draw your attention to chapter 7 and verse 1. Now for the matters you wrote about. And he goes on at this point, Paul does, to answer a number of questions the Corinthian church had asked. About the matters you wrote about, he talks about marriage here in chapter 7. As we come to chapter 8, you'll notice chapter 8 and verse 1 that he addresses food sacrifice to idols. Now about food sacrifice to idols. So here's another issue that they have and he brings a discussion on this matter. He says, we know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know, but the man who loves God is known by God. Without going into great detail, I'd like you at least to notice the contrast here between mere knowledge, which fuels pride, and divine love, which builds others up. Knowledge alone resides in the brain. Love opens its hand and gives and builds and improves others with that knowledge. So in at least muted terms, Paul suggests that many of the ethical dilemmas that the Corinthians are facing are resolved by the principle of divine love operating among them. He'll return to this point as we come to chapter 13. Paul then, from this point, chapter 8, he navigates his way through a number of problems, concluding with perhaps the most complicated and troubling problem that the church at Corinth was facing, and that was the use of miraculous gifts in the assembly. Chapters 12 through 14 are going to address the issue of spiritual gifts. And you see there again, in outline form, he says, chapter 12, now about spiritual gifts. So I've talked to you about one problem after another. We come now to the issue of spiritual gifts. Now, we do not know the precise nature of the Corinthians' question to Paul, but it had something to do with the use of these gifts in the assembly. Some in the church were receiving direct messages from God and were able to speak those messages in a language that they had never studied. Others had the miraculous gift of properly interpreting those messages. Others were receiving direct revelatory messages from God and prophesying in the assembly. And there were other miraculous gifts that were evidenced in that Corinthian church as well. You talk about exciting services. There's a discussion of the Word of God, and somebody over here stands up and begins to speak in Swahili. And everybody's, we don't have a clue what the person's saying, but it's obviously a message from God. And somebody over here stands up and says, I know what this is. God has given me this revelation to interpret this language that has just been spoken. And here's the message to the assembly, and the interpretation would be given. That's a pretty exciting service and miraculous healings to go with it. That would really change hospital visitation, wouldn't it? We don't know all of what happened and how they expressed these gifts. But to some degree, there were problems that were arising within the assembly over this issue. So exciting were these services that 2,000 years later, there's churches trying to imitate what those churches did. I believe without the miraculous reality behind it, but uh, they were very interesting. The problem was not with the gifts themselves, but with the fact that the use of these special endowments in the assembly were causing sharp divisions and were disrupting the church. 
Although this miracle working power was of God, the Corinthian church was in very bad shape. They were displaying their gifts selfishly, competitively, and boastfully. Instead of producing maturity and unity as these gifts were intended, the Spirit's good gifts were fueling discord and dissension among believers. And factions were rising up, a people uh, uniting together against the other factions in the church. It was a miserable situation. And what was the gift that particularly fascinated the Corinthians? What particularly fascinated them was this gift of tongues. As a matter of fact, when God's revelation came to somebody who could speak in Swahili, that carried greater weight than someone who received a message in Greek, or in our context, in English, let's say. That didn't play so well. That wasn't quite so dramatic. It wasn't quite so exciting. And so the Corinthian church was very taken with this idea of miraculous gifts or tongues. Now, Paul never downplays the importance of these miraculous gifts. They came from God. They were given by his providence at that moment and that time. They were a direct gift and there was nothing to discuss along those lines. But it was their use. It is to this that Paul turns his discussion. Now, Paul, how are you going to hit this matter? He realizes that at the heart of all of this is a lack of love, is a selfishness that pervades in the church. And so rather than simply start out saying, here's how you should do tongues in the assembly, he starts at it from a very different approach. He doesn't launch on a hasty address, but he lays the groundwork, so to speak, or sets up two stabilizing pillars. He says, he thinks apparently if these pillars are in place, all of this matter of tongues and all of the other problems the Corinthians are facing will be taken care of. What's the first pillar? The first pillar as we come to chapter 12 is this. You are a body. And God has placed each of you as individual parts in that body uniquely. Notice chapter 12 and verse 12 as we summarize this thinking. The body is a unit Though it is made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body, so it is with Christ. Verse 18, But in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as He wanted them to be. So the church is like a body. No body is made up of all elbows. The body has many different parts, and God has placed individuals in your assembly who are different from one another, that they would fit together and work together. Verse 24, I'll start at the middle of the verse, but God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. How ridiculous it would be to have a body where the parts of the body are fighting with each other and dividing with each other. So it is with you, he says. You're a body. You're the body of Christ. He's placed you where he's placed you for mutual edification. There's to be no competition. Only united effort toward a common goal. That's pillar one. The second pillar that he erects comes here in chapter 13 and is the matter of love. Paul sets in place the pillar of love. The Corinthians' troubles with tongues would dry up if they would follow the path of love. And so we notice there, verse 31, he says in chapter 12, 31, but eagerly desire the greater gifts, 
That is, I'm not saying anything negatively about gifts. In fact, it would be wise to pursue the greater gifts. He'll get to what he means by that later. But first he says, let's stop, and I want to erect a second major pillar, and that is the pillar of love. So verse 31b says, and now I show you the more excellent way. Paul says, listen, I'm going to address these questions about tongues in a few moments. But first, before I do that, I want to show you a superior way. The path to which I point you is a more productive, more significant, more excellent way than the use of miraculous gifts in the assembly. I think that would have certainly piqued their attention, would it not have? Here are individuals who are very interested in gifts, very interested in the display of those gifts within the assembly. And Paul says, I've got something superior to talk to you about. I think they're listening. A better way? Something greater than tongues? We're all ears, Paul. Say on. And so he does, addressing this matter of love. And this is a no-holds-barred apologetic for divine love. He pulls out all the stops and lets us have it. This is love in this poetic form, how we are to understand it. And we note, first of all, in the first three verses, the necessity of love. The absolute necessity of love. He's going to consider this along two lines. First of all, we consider the highest of all privileged powers. Let's take, as believers, the highest of all privileged powers. Let's consider those powers without love. What do we have at the end? Now, in these three verses, you'll notice that Paul strings together a series of hypothetical privileges a human being might experience. Tongues, miraculous healings, says Paul, let's up the stakes. Let's consider the highest imaginable privilege of divine power a human being could conceivably experience in his Christian walk. Verse 1, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels. So, says Paul, let's imagine that I had not only the spiritual gift of tongues, which allowed me to speak in, let's say, one or two foreign languages from time to time as God gave a message. But let's imagine that I could speak in any language known to man and even in the language of angels. Now, when we find the language of angels in the Bible, they're always speaking and people can understand. But let's just assume that in heaven there is a language that everybody learns as they enter the gates or something along those lines, and angels do speak a language that we have never been able to discern. Now, it's discernible, but let's say that angels have this perfect heavenly language. There's no irregular verbs. There's no exceptions to the rules. It's just the perfect language. Let's say you could speak that language as well. And as a matter of fact, you can speak with eloquence that no man could ever imitate. If someone had the power to speak any and every language, earthly and divine, with great, perfect eloquence, but has no love. Notice there the verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. I remember the first night a couple years ago that we were spending in India, and tired is an understatement. We were so exhausted, we weren't quite sure how to spell your name, but we were there the first night, sleeping very hard, and in the middle of the night, there was this strange noise that woke us. And it was a clanging, banging, just the strangest sound I'd ever heard in my life. 
I was so exhausted that as soon as it stopped, I fell right back to sleep. But what it was was some Hindus, and I don't know if it was three or four in the morning, they were going down the street, clanging cymbals on the way to one of their temples. It was a really weird sound. Well, that sound, something like that, was something with which the Corinthians would have been very familiar. You know, we got up the next day for breakfast, we wanted to find out what that noise was. Never heard anything like it. Well, they knew right away without even hearing what the noise was. Oh, those were symbols. That were, they were Hindus heading to the temple. The Corinthians would have been in the very same type of environment particularly in the worship of Dionysus and Sybil in these cults. They would have heard often the gonging sound of bronze gongs and the metal of cymbals that were used in the worship of these gods. Those gongs and cymbals made a lot of noise. But once the sound stopped, they were meaningless heathen racket. That's all they were. And so Paul says, you might have the ultimate gift of tongues, and if you do not have love, your words, your gift is nothing more than meaningless chatter. It is sound without purpose. He goes on with a second hypothetical, verse 2. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that I can remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Now let's consider what's said here. Prophecy, all mysteries, all knowledge. This is wisdom concerning truths man could not discover on his own, but which God reveals. Faith that can remove mountains. This is not, I don't believe, saving faith here. I believe he's referring to the gift of faith. Faith such as Jesus referred to in Matthew 21, 21, that can move mountains if it is God's will. To have the gift of prophecy, to understand all mysteries, to have all knowledge, to have mountain-moving faith would be phenomenal. You would be the greatest Christian celebrity on the face of the earth if you had these possessions. There would be television studios after you, even in the secular television world. They would want interviews, they would want to promote your name, you would be amazing. And churches everywhere would be lined up on a list to have you speak and share your great knowledge and your great mysteries, the mysteries that you've understood. And you know what Paul says? You can have all of that and it will be absolutely useless without love. Meaningless. Now think of that. All knowledge, all mysteries, all faith so that we could remove mountains. If you don't have love, it is a big zero. So that says to us that we can be a great prayer warrior, and if we don't have love, we are nothing in God's eyes. You can be insightful and wise and know God's word from cover to cover better than anyone else around you, and if you do not have love, you are nothing in God's eyes. You can have miracle-working confidence in God, and if you do not have love, you are nothing in God's eyes. Let's let it sound here in our assembly. Nothing. We must have love. The highest of all privileged powers are meaningless if we do not have love, if they are not expressed in a loving way, if they do not stem or if they're not fueled by love. They're meaningless. 
So he has considered the highest of all privileged powers. Secondly, Paul now considers the greatest of all self-abandoning sacrifices. Verse 3, another hypothetical. If I give all I possess to the poor. Let's consider that for a moment. The idea of the Greek word here is if I give away everything that I own in small fragments to a large number of people. In fact, the words to the poor are not found in the Greek text, but the word itself is so full that it means that we dole out in little amounts everything that we have. If you gave away all of your wealth in one afternoon, you could be charged with irrationality. It was just an impetuous act. You just kind of in one moment pushed a button and gave it all away. I'm not talking about that, says Paul. I'm talking about giving away little by little over time to a lot of people. And if you gave it away all at once, you could potentially get it all back fairly easily. You just ring up that one person you gave it all to or those few that you gave it all to and you say, you know, I've had a little change of heart here. Could I get a little bit back? Paul's saying, I'm going to take this in the most strict possible sense. This is no quick decision, but a long process. No possibility of appealing to one person or a small handful to get it back. This is doling out everything that you possess. Little by little, you watch it all go away until you're left with absolutely nothing. And you do so out of concern for other people. Or at least to give away everything that you have in sacrifice for other people. Do you have that in you? to let go of everything that you own? Let's consider another if, as he considers these self-abandoning sacrifices. Middle of verse 3, if I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames. Now it's hard to know what Paul means there because martyrdom by burning was largely unknown at this time. He's certainly not commending self-mutilation or suicide. Perhaps he's thinking of Daniel's friends in Babylon who, standing for God, were burned. But maybe more likely he's just thinking of saving someone from a fire. Think of those courageous acts of individuals who run into a burning building or jump into water and they give their life for the person they're trying to save. The ultimate self-abandoning sacrifice is to lay down your life for someone else. Now let's take those two ideas. You give away everything that you have to other people. You let go of it all. And you give your life to save somebody from danger, and you die in their place. You do all of that. And as verse 3 says, But have not love, I gain nothing. If that doesn't get us to sit up and listen, we have a spiritual problem that is very deep. I have nothing without love. No gain, writes Lenski. The greatest gifts and the grandest deeds, together with all their greatness and their grandness, are nothing, make us nothing, and bring us to nothing if love is absent. Giving and courage must be motivated by love or they are useless deeds that accomplish nothing in the eyes of God. They might bring great accolades down upon your head, in this world, even among other believers. But if it's without love, God who looks down with perfect judgment says, meaningless. God's call to love is not optional. We must have love. Love is not an emphasis of the Christian life that we can take or leave. Well, that church over there, they kind of emphasize love. That's kind of their thing. 
Or this Christian here, he's sort of oriented that way, or she's kind of like that. She's just a loving person, and we're grateful for them. No. God says, Christian, if you don't have it, you're nothing. You're absolutely nothing, and you gain nothing without it. Love is not the province of the spiritual elite, which we can only hope to attain. It is certainly not the domain of the weak and compromising. Love is essential. Without it, we have nothing, we are nothing. The highest of privileged powers in God's kingdom, the greatest of self-abandoning sacrifices are all worthless if divine love does not possess us. How does this apply to you, to me? Maybe there's struggles in your marriage. Maybe there's an enemy in your life. Somebody that's making life miserable. Maybe there's struggles with siblings or workmates. Someone you despise. You realize, Christian, that in the midst of that situation, there is a struggle for your soul. That's a struggle for your soul. That's not some irritant that just happens to be there. This is a battle for your very being. Satan would love to snuff out the flame of love, and he would love to render you worthless. But God is calling you to live a life of love. A life that loves our enemies, that loves our neighbors as we love ourselves. Those are bold assertions. Give my body to death, to give all my possessions away, to be endowed with every spiritual strength and gift and all knowledge, and all of that is meaningless without love, that's a very bold assertion. I don't know how to read this passage of Scripture without sitting up then and saying, all right, what do we mean here? And that's where Paul turns now. What do you mean, Paul, by love? Paul does not offer a strict definition of love. Now, at verse 4, there's a transition here in the text. You've got to have it, verses 1 through 3. You're nothing without it. Here's what it is. But it's interesting how he defines love. Remember, as we look to the writings of John and consider his teaching concerning love, John does not pull out a dictionary and say, here is love, and then give a definition. What does John say? What is love? I want you to look over there across this field. I want you to lift your eyes up and to notice there are three crosses, and on that center cross, that is love. I can't define it but I can see it. There is Jesus hanging there. This is how we know love. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. That's love. Now it's interesting, Paul in a very different way does the same thing. What is love, Paul? He doesn't pull out a dictionary and define it from a dictionary. He says this is what it looks like. It's almost as if the biblical authors are incapable of describing exactly what divine love is. It's better for us just to see it. And so Paul says, here's what it looks like. We looked at the absolute necessity of divine love. At verse 4, he turns to the characteristics of this love. Verse 4, it is patient. What I'm going to do here is just try to give us a sense of what this means. 
And by God's grace, we'll go into further depth as to how to apply and understand and think through these matters, Lord willing, next week. But let me just take this as a first pass. Let's just try to get a right sense of what Paul means by these words as we study these Greek terms. First of all, patience. This word is not used in the New Testament often. It is not used in the New Testament of patience putting up with circumstances. It's used of patience with people. As we look at these characteristics, it's clear that Paul has in mind primarily our relationship with other people. You don't really have to worry too much about dividing a love for God and a love for others because the two flow together and are inseparable. But here his focus seems to be on how we relate to one another. Why is that? Hearing the context, right? We have this Corinthian church with these divisions, this disunity, this hatred toward one another, these difficulties, even lawsuits within the assembly. So it's an exciting place in more ways than one. But they don't like each other, many of these people. So Paul is driving at love from a humanly relational perspective. It's patient with people. As this word is used, it pictures a steadfast spirit which endures the wrongs others commit against us and steadfastly resists resentment and anger. Just thinking of the end here, but as we go through these words, we have to remember that without love we're nothing. A steadfast spirit which endures the wrongs others commit against us and steadfastly resists resentment and anger. It is secondly, kind. Love is kind. Love is actively and graciously aware of the concerns of others. The Greek word is variously translated as kind, gracious, useful, friendly, helpful. It looks at other people and it relates to them kindly. It does not envy, verse 4. The Greek word here means to seethe. It speaks of selfish zeal which wells up in jealousy and envy. Love never begrudges others their successes. Love never begrudges others their successes. It does not look at what someone possesses or what someone has experienced and then say, I should have that too. Or, I wish they did not have that. Love does not boast. That is, love does not brag. It's not self-focused, and therefore it doesn't waste wind promoting itself in a way that does others no good. Verse 4, love is not proud. The Greek reads, puffed up, filled with self. It is not rude. Here the word means to behave indecently, shamefully, or without tact. This is the idea of failing to afford proper respect and honor to others. So I don't think we should read rude here as it doesn't burp in public or something like that. But it's, it's tactless. It's thoughtless. It's indecent and shameful toward others in the way it acts. It is, verse 5, not self-seeking. I think the word is self-explanatory. And we've seen this in the life of Christ and the life to which he calls us, that it is other-centered. It is Edenic. That is, it's the life of Adam and Eve prior to the fall when a self-consciousness overwhelmed them and continues to overwhelm all of us every day. Not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. The Greek word here is irritable, touchy, overly sensitive. 
easily exasperated with people. Love can handle insult and injury without flying off the handle. It keeps no record of wrongs. This is an accounting term, and it speaks of entering a figure on a ledger. Love does not carefully keep a register of wrongs others commit against us in order that that record can be evened out someday. It does not delight in evil. The idea here I don't think is jumping up and down with joy at sin, but I think the idea here is evil that visits another individual. This is a matter of rejoicing that another person did wrong or was wronged. There's a wickedness of heart that leads us to this sometimes. When someone fails or someone does wrong, there's something of a small spark of joy. That's not love. It never does that. And there's no spark of joy when someone is wronged. Love does not find pleasure in bad reports. That's the idea. It rejoices with the truth. Verse 6. Love finds in truth an object of joy. Love does not rejoice in lying, deception, falsehood, hypocrisy, or heresy. It doesn't sneak around. It doesn't have to cover its trail. Verse 7. Now we look at what love always does. It always protects The Greek reads, it covers all things. And the idea of the word is one of forbearance. We really struggle to translate this in English. But it covers in a forbearing type of sense. It puts up with others. It always trusts, or the Greek word, believes. This is not speaking of naivete, but love gives people the benefit of the doubt. It is not suspicious. It does not expect the worst from people. It is not ever doubting and always trying to sniff out a conspiracy. Love doesn't operate that way. You see how this necessitates a belief in the sovereign God. I don't have to sniff out every conspiracy because I believe God rules. It always hopes. This is a hope in people, certainly a hope in God, but I think specifically it's a hope in people. That is, love is not pessimistic. Love has strong confidence in God's grace and therefore has great hope in the future of people. Against all hope, sometimes it believes that God will work and He will change people. It always perseveres. This word deals more with circumstances than the first word of this list, patience. The idea is holding up under trials with joy, not resignation and not depression. Such a virtue is made possible by a belief in providence and in the reign of a sovereign God over all things. You have to have it. This is what it looks like. If you get to the end of this list and you really understand these words and what they really mean, not in your own characterization, in your own twisted way, but you take these words straight up from what they really mean and how they really look, you have to get to the end of this list and have your hand over your mouth. You have to get to the end of this list and stand empty before God and realize that we are nothing in our own strength, in our own spirit. We don't find the capacity to live this way. 
That's the life to which God is calling us. A life that is supernatural. Not a life that is natural, but a life that is endowed with this divine love that flows through us and treats people in ways that are absolutely inexplicable apart from his love. It's this life to which God calls us. It's this life to which we must press. It's this life that we must hold up. And we are in the midst of a situation where all of the heroes of the faith in our day seem to be people who are simply charismatic. They're people who have great personalities and great capacities, and they do certain things that draw great attention. They are people, as Paul describes here, who do seem to speak in the tongues of men and of angels, and do seem to have mountain-moving faith at times. We need to set all of that aside and realize that God says here, if you don't have love, you're nothing, and those people are nothing. It gets right down to it. It's a matter of, are you patient? Are you kind? Do you envy and boast? Are you proud? If you want to have standing before the eyes of God, then you're not tactless and rude. You're not self-seeking or easily angered. You keep no record of wrongs against others. You don't delight when trouble comes into their lives, but you rejoice in truth. You are one who forbears, one who believes in people, who trusts in the providence of God, who hopes and who perseveres. You don't throw up your hands. It's this life to which we're called. Where do we see this life? Paul is pointing us to the same place that John was pointing us to. He's just simply saying, this is Jesus. This is how he lived. This is how he was. He loved. And all of these characteristics inherit in the person of Jesus Christ And let me venture here the thought that I think it is these characteristics which were also in great demonstration in the life of the Apostle. What drives a man to go through all that Paul went through? Whippings and shipwreck and hunger, persecution, stoning, and to just keep going. To never quit, to never give up, It is an absolute abandonment of self as the controlling principle of your life. There was a love in his heart from God that led him to do what was right at all times and led him to relate to other people as was right at all times. Jesus was being formed in Paul. And if Jesus is being formed in us, then we must have love. And this is what it looks like. Let's go to prayer and let's ask the Lord to be producing these qualities in us as his people. Our Father, we come before you in abject poverty, naked in our sin. And we realize that we are nothing. As Romans 3.19 says, 
our mouth is stopped. As we read in Ezekiel 16 today, we have nothing to say. We stand with our heads bowed and we ask, dear God, that you would work this wonderful grace in our lives, that we would be people who genuinely love. Not the sentimental love that swirls around in our world, but a love that transforms. In fact, a love that sometimes makes cheap love look very silly. God, I pray that your love, your divine love, would sanctify our romantic passions, would sanctify our love for family, would sanctify our friendship loves. God, that this love would permeate and change us. God, as you know, whatever level of appropriateness there is in chocolates and stuffed animals and romantic dinners and all of these things. As they're appropriate for certain people in certain places and times, I pray, dear God, that our couples in this church would never be fooled to think that that's all that love is. But I pray that their romantic loves would be fueled by this divine love of patience and kindness and goodness and faith. Oh God, I pray that you would change us from within, not from without. I pray, dear God, that as we deal with enemies in our lives, people who are hostile to us, people who hurt us and harm us, dear God, that we'd not keep a record of wrongs, that we would not be quick to anger, we would not seethe with bitterness. Lord, I pray that you'll transform us to be people who love their enemies and draw others to your love through our love for them. God, there's a great work that needs to be done in our lives. We sense it. We stand before you as fallen creatures. But we rejoice together that as you have called us not to keep a record of wrongs, in the person of Jesus Christ, you have demonstrated that very pattern. And for those of us who know you as Savior, you have canceled the record. God, we thank you. We thank you that our sins were nailed to the cross and that we bear them no more. And we praise you, God, with all our soul. If there is one among us who does not know this saving faith and this forgiveness of our wickedness and sin, I plead that you show them your love and show them that just what you command us here in 1 Corinthians 13, you have done for us in the person of Christ. Please draw such a one to saving faith today. May we stand for you as your people. May we be drawn to this love, I pray. I plead that you'll do this work in us because we can't do it in ourselves. Strengthen us to this end. In the name of Christ, I pray.